Well, don't forget from that viewpoint, you're, you're on the far left. That's more like right? it. Okay, kid? All right. Further right. left than Victor anyway, <laughs> that's, that's the main thing. Can I have your attention, please? On, uh, good evening. On behalf of Penn's President, Norman Mailer, and the Executive Board of Penn, I'd like to welcome you here this evening. Uh, before I begin, I would like to make some announcements on future Penn events. Uh, on March 26th at 8 p.m. at Penn headquarters at 568 Broadway, which is on the corner of Broadway and Prince, there is a panel and workshop titled The Business of Literary Translation. Uh, the participants are Paul Oster, Thomas Colchi, Peggy Fox, and Deborah Carl. On Wednesday, April 3rd, there's a panel and workshop titled The Profession of Literary Translation, uh, Manuscript to Bound Book. Uh, moderator is Peter Glasgold. That's also at the Penn headquarters. On Monday, April 15th, uh, all, again at Penn headquarters, is the third in the, free, in the Penn Freedom to Write series of readings from censored and imprisoned writers uh, on the Philippines. And that's free and open to the public. My name is Harold Marcus, and I'm the coordinator of the American Right to Read program at Penn. Uh, who's, we are sponsoring this event. Uh, PEN is a rather loose acronym for poets, playwrights, editors, essayists, and novelists. We are a writer's organization. And I'd like to welcome you this evening on behalf of that organization. Uh, this panel is presented through our American Right to Read program, which is in part funded by the Educational Foundation of America. We're very fortunate tonight to have so many distinguished writers, lawyers, and editors on this panel, each of them very involved with the issue of libel. Uh, this is an issue that's not only timely with the recent cases of William Westmoreland and Ariel Sharon, but it's also a topic that holds tremendous importance to us as writers and readers and, and citizens of this country. Uh, with that very brief introduction, let me turn over this evening to our moderator, Harriet Dorson, who will introduce the rest of the panel. She's an attorney who specializes in libel and publishing law issues. She's a partner at Lankenau, Kovner, and Bickford, and she was part of the CBS defense team in the Westmoreland litigation. Uh, Harriet Dorsey. Thank you, Hal. Just a few introductory remarks, and then I'm going to turn the program over to the panel. The title of the program tonight is Libel, the Subtle Censorship, and we're going to try and explore some of the ways in which the libel laws act as a censor and affect what you as writers and editors and publishers do and how you go about doing it. Um, when we started to talk about what are the special concerns of some of us and what we'd like to discuss with you tonight, we realized that we'd like to broaden the context of the panel this evening and talk about the laws in general which seek to regulate the content of publications in one way or another and which affect the decisions that you as editors, publishers, and writers may have to face. The reason for that is because in thinking about it, we don't have any real direct censorship 
of publications in this country. But we do have a variety of subtle censorships, as the title to tonight's program suggests, which affect very directly how you go about doing your jobs as writers, editors, and publishers. When we look back at the history of publishing in this country, see that at the time of the passage of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, there were a variety of laws on the books which affected and regulated the content of publications. Libel laws, seditious libel laws, which made it a crime to criticize government and government officials, blasphemy laws, obscenity laws, laws regulating commercial speech and national security. Since that time, especially since the end of the First World War, the courts have, through the First Amendment, have provided a substantial body of protection for publications. Uh, nevertheless, problems remain, and the kinds of censorship that we're all subject to are more subtle. Um, I think a couple of the items that have been in the newspaper in the last couple of days, the CIA's proposed bill to make it a crime for government officials to give classified information to the press is one example of that. The prosecution for espionage of Samuel Loring Morrison in Maryland, which is going on now, is another example. Uh, some of you may have followed the story of Leslie Gelb's unfortunate run-in with the State Department. Um, the government's attempt to limit the coverage of the invasion of Granada, uh, and a number of other actions by the government which seek to regulate what gets published and what gets printed. At the same time, there are a number of efforts by private groups to have some effect and some censorship effect on what's published and printed in this country. The two examples of the libel suits brought by General Sharon and General Westmoreland are the prime examples and something that most of us, I think, are familiar with. I don't think it's any secret that both of those libel suits were brought not for the traditional purposes of protecting reputation, but for other reasons. General Sharon supported, give, giving financial support by his political supporters in this country was seeking to redress his tarnished reputation to revive his political career in Israel. And General Westmoreland's backers, financial backers in his lawsuit, if not the general himself, were outspoken in their uh, purposes in funding his lawsuit. Let me just read you a little bit um, of a press release from the Capitol Legal Foundation, which represented General Westmoreland in his lawsuit against CBS. They said, we categorically support the classical private use of the courts to police institutions which abuse their power. We oppose any legislative attempts prompted by public outrage at media abuses to circumscribe the media's right to publish what they please but we think it's critical that an alternative to regulation, in this case the classical libel suit, um, be used to encourage responsible reporting. The answer here is not regulation, but litigation. General Westmoreland and others like him should take the opportunity the courts offer to vindicate themselves so that only the fair, effective, and flexible check on media unfairness and concentration, the courts and the jury system, can operate. This is a far cry from the traditional use of a libel suit to avenge a, a tarnished reputation. With that brief background, I'd like to introduce Donald Freed, who's sitting to my right, who is a prize-winning playwright and historian. In addition to his book, Death in Washington, on the assassination of Orlando Lettier, he is the author of the play Inquest, which appeared on Broadway in 1970, and the play Secret Honor, 
which he worked with Robert Altman on the film version and won the Critics' Prize in the Berlin Film Festival. His new play about Adolf Eichmann opens in New York this summer. Donald? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Patty and I have looked forward a long time to tonight, about four years, long before Harold Marcus and Penn thought of putting forward this event. But it had to be an event something like this, with people like this, concerned and involved and engaged in an audience like this, many of them very well known as researchers, (coughs) writers, historians, artists, uh, so that the feelings of isolation might be assuaged that gather around a target of these new kinds of libel actions. So I am very grateful to you, very grateful to Penn. Uh, Indeed, it was Penn four years ago, Jeffrey Ripps, who had just worked with Allen Ginsberg on a remarkable study of the infiltration and repression of the underground press, uh, who helped create a context, and then Harold Marcus and others, and people who kindly joined together tonight, and you all. Uh, Perhaps Freud was correct that those who belong together need not be glued together, but uh, it does make a difference, doesn't it, Uh, to have some sort of coherent uh, solidarity, which I take this to be. And um, I know that uh, the four years in this case of this new kind of blacklist, which issues from this new kind of censorship, Uh, had it not been for Patty Freed organizing nationally on the one hand and then this kind of response here tonight on the other, uh, the situation would be much more dangerous and much more uh, alienating uh, than it otherwise is. Uh, I hope then to make a contribution by expanding somewhat the boundaries of the discussion of libel and its implications politically at this point. There is a great deal being written about Time Magazine, CBS, and libel as an event métier, and changes in libel and American traditions and all sorts of historical and uh, modern uh, variations on this theme of censorship and of libel. But I would like to take the term or the word subtle in the title for tonight's um, discussion uh, and ring it, uh, if possible, a different way. Uh, I would like to argue that there has been a long and um, disgraceful policy in this culture of secret police intervention in publishing, producing, teaching, and communicating and that it is a more dangerous dimension, that it is covert, it is indeed subtle, but it is not subtle in the ordinary usage of that word. It is violent, not just because it's secret, but it is violent, uh, as I hope to use documents now, to implement these inflammatory remarks that I'm making, and I hope they are shocking enough that you would demand proof or documentation if this discussion is going to be broadened, and especially in this period that lies ahead in these next four years. So uh, 
I am going to speak personally and use personal documents uh, for once uh, in the service of, I hope, not frightening anyone and not creating a scandal, but instead um, trying to develop a more political point of view towards what has been going on covertly and therefore necessarily is less known about. Each one of these documents is part of a freeze-dried dossier. Uh, it is a caricature or a parody of one's own biography that one receives under freedom of information or elsewhere. It is not one's own life that one reads about in these secret police files, but it is an abstraction by the secret police of one's life, but it is reality as far as the state is concerned. And it is the struggle between that reality of the state and the reality of the individual. Uh, that is at issue, I think, in these matters of freedom of speech. It is the existential issue behind the legal issue. In 1969, in a memorandum uh, from W.C. Sullivan to W.A. Brannigan, subject Julius Rosenberg, Espionage Russia, we have a, the first in a series of FBI documents regarding a play at that time called the United States versus Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, then being tried out in Cleveland. And um, the FBI states in this memorandum that letters be forwarded to the Attorney General and to Judge Kaufman concerning a play entitled The United States versus Julius and Ethel Rosenberg currently showing in Cleveland, Ohio, which is critical of the government handling of that case. At the bottom it says, the play is directed by Larry Tarrant, a graduate of the University of Wichita, employed as a play director in the Cleveland area for the past five years. No identifiable derogatory information on Tarrant or any of the actors or actresses in Cleveland, New York, or bureau files. So they had open files on everyone connected uh, with this production. Parenthetically, these, those remarkable contemporary historians, Walter and Miriam Schneer, who are here tonight, these same documents from the FBI shows how their book, Invitation to an Inquest, which was the seminal book in this case, was the subject and target of any number of filthy tricks by the FBI and how they themselves were kept off of radio and television appearances through direct intervention of the secret police. That's the kind of subtlety I wish to uh, focus on tonight. The, it says, action, there is attached a letter to the Attorney General furnishing him with information concerning this play and its anti-government slant. There is also attached a letter to Judge Irving Kaufman furnishing information concerning this play. In 1969, uh, we have a letter, Dear Edgar, from Judge Kaufman. Thank you so much for your letter, furnishing me with the background information of the gentleman responsible for writing the play the United States versus Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. I believe you will be interested in seeing a copy of a letter sent by former federal judge Simon Rifkin. Here we have the beginning of a front group under behind Judge Rifkin, whose aim we find out on May 19, 1969, was to express alarm at the fact that the New York Times reviewed the play entitled Two Weeks in a Row. The letter of Judge Rifkin was printed in the New York Times, and this... Uh, bureau memo goes on to talk about the campaign 
to dissuade the New York Times from further coverage. By 1970, the play has been retitled Inquest, and the memorandum reports receipt of the script of a play, a stolen script of a play. By this time, in another historical footnote, Morton Sobel had emerged from prison, was working on his own book, and we were to find out in these documents about the unremitting campaign, first to deny him his day in court, then his freedom, and finally any argument or airing of his uh, remarkable uh, career and the events in his life. He's here tonight, Martin Sobel. Um, the recommendation in this... Um, in this particular missive is this matter will be followed closely. By 1970, uh, Mark Felt is reporting to Mr. Tolson that Judge Kaufman was most cordial and expressed extremely high regard for the director. He was uh, very complimentary concerning the operations of the New York office. It is the New York office, and Mr. Felt, who came under uh, criminal indictment, at the end of the Carter administration, and you may remember it was Mr. Reagan's first, virtually first, uh, important act in office to relieve Mr. Felt and other FBI officials of any uh, cause of judgment against them in their breaking and entering and in their massive violation of Americans' rights uh, during the 1960s and 70s. Coming to the end... um, of these matters. This memorandum reports on an article appearing in TV Guide for 3-1674 by Simon H. Rifkin, which reports the true facts in the Rosenberg case. And so forth. TV Guide, of course, being used in the Rosenberg case as it has been used both before and since to attack a whole genre of work called docudrama, uh, which is, we are told uh, by the aesthetic judges that be at TV Guide is not a true form of drama. In fact, it was the teleplays about Joseph McCarthy, about the Rosenberg case, about CBS, indeed, in the Westmoreland case, that uh, TV Guide has acted in that capacity as arbiter and critic, and indeed point, a sort of a point man on libel actions. What follows is a drawing of a pig uh, and in crude um, purported ghetto English on what appears to be a rather crude offset printing. It says, Don Freed is a pig. We don't know just what kind of pig he is, but Freed is an LAPD pig, an FBI pig, a CIA pig, and so forth. It goes on purporting to be a Black Panther leaflet, which announces at the end, we got news for Freed, pigs will never replace panthers. The FBI document uh, states that it is noted that the weekend of July 18th, there will be a meeting at Merritt College, Oakland, California, calling United Front Against Fascism in America. In connection with the COINTELPRO set forth in Los Angeles and approved by the Bureau, it is thought of the Los Angeles office that this would be a good opportunity to distribute copies of the throwaway, indicating that Don Freed, one of the organizers of the Friends of the Black Panther Party, is actually an informant for a governmental agency. And it goes on, mentioning others, and says, finally, San Francisco office is requested to be on the alert for any information indicating the attitude of the recipients of the throwaway. 
This was shortly before I was arrested in a Black Panther dragnet. Clearly, these leaflets, which were passed out by the thousands in black ghettos across the country, were aimed at violence being done to me and the Panthers in the event being blamed for the violence, a blueprint which was used in the late 60s and early 70s in the war against the Panthers. Um, there are much more to this story. I was at that time helping edit some books by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. The campaign, the war against the Black Panther Party is an untold, still an untold story in this country. Uh, and it goes beyond anything uh, that students of these matters of state violence have, have dwelt on. Next comes uh, Central Intelligence Agency documents, too long to read, but they indicate in the one major newspaper that did a story on them, U.S. plotted against Warren Report critics. Uh, highlights are that um, the, the Central Intelligence Agency writes, our organization is directly involved in the assassination probe. Among other facts, we contributed information to the investigation. Conspiracy theorists have frequently thrown suspicion on our organization. The aim of this dispatch is to provide material for countering and discrediting the claims of the conspiracy theorists so as to inhibit the circulation of such claims in other countries. This involved the printing of book reviews, the handing out of book reviews, or manner of disinformation or misinformation, as it's called, uh, on a around the world in what the CIA refers to as its quotes elite assets close quotes in the media perhaps the most single sensitive issue to the secret police is the cooperation uh, with what the FBI calls FOBs friends of the bureau and what the CIA calls elite media assets we refer here find a reference to Joachim Yesten a West German who wrote one of the first books attacking the Warren Report and it is a sad day to say, and I will not call his name, but one of the most famous liberal lawyers in this country sat on the Warren Commission and circulated Gestapo files on Joachim Yeston to the press to show that he was a premature anti-communist. The Gestapo had named him as a communist suspect in the 1930s, and those files were used to discredit Joachim Yeston as a critic of the Warren Commission report. Well, <coughs> I wrote a book, <coughs> and with Dalton Trumbo and Mark Lane wrote a film on it, there were armed guards on the set, on that closed set of that film, Executive Action, because of a series of threats and other such like dirty tricks against the producers of that film. And we come finally, and I know we're all going to try to leave as much time for you as possible, to something called Challenge. And uh, this uh, says, and this advisory board to challenge, which is a group of former intelligence officers, includes James Buckley, high in the administration's involvement in Central America, William Colby, Michael Collins, uh, General Robert Cushman, Lyman Kirkpatrick, Gordon McClendon, General Richard Stilwell, others. This calls for campaigns against a book called Conspiracy by Anthony Summers, against a magazine, against Freed for writing a novel called The Spymaster. Uh, it says that we are setting up a intelligence officers legal action fund which should not be tied to the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, says the author of this letter, David Atley Phillips. And finally, we, will you help me launch challenge? This will be an intelligence officer's legal action, not defense fund. And they intend to prosecute anyone who attacks an intelligence officer 
in print, whether that intelligence officer be living or dead, thus expanding the parameters uh, as they see it of this matter of libel. Um, I should say that uh, in this $200 million suit, which first Ramsey Clark and then Mel Wolf were kind enough to take up defense for, which is moving now towards its conclusion, uh, most interesting uh, interrogatories and depositions were taken. The Latalier case is a ticking bomb to this day. It is the, his murder on Washington Row, on Embassy Row, was the hour of the boomerang uh, in the Cold War. It was the first foreign diplomat ever assassinated in this country. Uh, there are echoes to the Kennedy assassination in the Latalier assassination. It is a Cold War horror that uh, deserves your study. Uh, the dirty tricks followed. An agent of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers under a pretext entered our home. Um, one thing uh, led to another over a period of time, and finally that information we will be able to use. Again, they have, as usual, gone too far, uh, and this kind of violence and this kind of uh, uh, bad faith in a legal action uh, I think will backfire on them. Indeed, as your presence here tonight makes it possible that the entire suit will backfire on them. Finally, from Judge um, Thomas Jackson, a Reagan appointee, a very conservative judge, comes a ruling this fall uh, which argues, which says that the jury will be instructed that the following facts are true. That plaintiff, plaintiff being Phillips, former head of covert action for the Western Hemisphere and in charge of the Track 2 operation in Chile in the overthrow of the elected Allende government. That plaintiff had relationships with journalists during his career with the Central Intelligence Agency and during his CIA service he specialized in propaganda and the planting of false information in the media. Two, that during plaintiff's CIA career there were regular contacts between the CIA and DINA, the Chilean secret police agency. Three, that plaintiff knew and worked with DINA personnel during his CIA service. Four, that during plaintiff's CIA career, the CIA had a working relationship with DINA personnel. All this, by the way, always denied from the days of the church hearings on. And five, that plaintiff had both a motive for assisting and the means to do so in the concealment of any complicity of DINA personnel in the murder of the Chilean diplomat Orlando Latalier in September 1976, Thomas Penfield Jackson, U.S. District Judge. The case is scheduled for trial in September. If so, we will be deposing Vice President Bush, who was director of CIA during this period of time. These are a sample of the long paper chain that exists of which I'm a minor player, uh, but one who is not backward uh, in my own behalf or others in trying to urge a more serious discussion of the violence of the state uh, through the so-called legal means and political means and the absolute dereliction of the establishment and general liberal media on any but the most highly supported cases, so that the individual writers, and this within the memory of the blacklist, when it was precisely writers who went to jail in their numbers, in an educated, super-industrial state such as this, with an educated class of its own, to treat at arm's length 
individual writers, publishers, and producers is a recipe for disaster. It is a death wish. It, what is required is real solidarity, a redefinition of the problem, and some militancy and solidarity, such as tonight seems to be the beginning of. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Uh, the next panelist is Bill Schapp. Bill is an attorney, a member of the New York and D.C. Bars, and cooperating counsel for the Center of Constitutional Rights. He's also the co-editor of Covert Action Information Bulletin, the director of Sheraton Square Publications, and is a freelance journalist. Bill. Thank you. I uh, want to deal with some areas related to libel and the threat of libel, but slightly more arcane and uh, I think equally relevant to the broad topic under discussion here tonight. We want to have a lot of time for questions, as Don mentioned, so I will just try to touch on some of the areas I want to put into the hopper for this discussion. The first being right-wing media pressure groups, uh, especially a group known as Accuracy in Media. Accuracy in Media calls itself quote, America's only citizen's watchdog of the news media, unquote. Uh, but as Bill Moyers recently put it, they are to accuracy in the media what Cleopatra was to chastity on the Nile. <laughs> AIM is massively funded uh, to the tune of several million dollars by large corporations and right-wing foundations, and it constantly publishes and circulates widely newsletters, reports, and press releases. It attacks journalists and the media it dislikes through coordinated campaigns, contacting advertisers and owners in an effort to make the offending reporter a liability or at least a nuisance to his or her employers. A number of its campaigns, in fact, have been far more successful than many people realize. These victories have been as effective as any libel suit could be, even more, perhaps, because the media employers have not had to worry about a courtroom First Amendment kind of loss for which they must fight even when their hearts are not in it. AIM, for example, successfully spearheaded the drive to convince Kimberly Clark not to sponsor and CBS not to continue the Ed Asner show. This primarily because uh, Ed Asner was a leading member of a group supporting uh, the FDR, FMLN in El Salvador, uh, although even that's an overstatement, it was medical aid for El Salvador. Uh, and Kimberly Clark, maker of Kleenex, has the one and only gigantic Kleenex uh, and other paper goods factory in Central America in El Salvador. AIM led a long and vicious campaign against Ray Bonner of the New York Times, calling him a propagandist for guerrillas, a uh, communist dupe, uh, and the like. Um, Bonner was in good company, I might add, because AIM uh, has suggested that Walter Cronkite is a Soviet agent, and they called Harrison uh, Salisbury a purveyor of disinformation. Thousands of form letters of complaint swamped the Times, and finally AIM's director, Reed Irvine, announced in his newsletter, and I quote, here is some good news. You can quit writing Mr. Salzberger at the New York Times about Raymond Bonner. Bonner is no longer the correspondent for the Times in Central America, unquote. AIM has attacked all journalists who suggest the U.S. did not really win in Vietnam. 
and you can figure out its line on Central America by the fact that Irvine usually refers to the so-called death squads, whatever they may be. Uh, AIM is totally Manichaean in its, in its view of the U.S. media, continually suggesting that anyone who disagrees with them is at best a Soviet dupe and at worst a KGB agent. But before you dismiss them as clowns, let me tell you about the ABC annual meeting. After ABC aired the show the day after on the terrors of nuclear war, Accuracy in Media, which owns a few shares of ABC and most other major media for just such operations as this, commenced a fight, ultimately all the way to the SEC, to require a vote on their motion that the company institute an investigation into the extent of the KGB's infiltration of ABC, which allowed a communist propaganda show to be aired on American television. Now, mind you, they lost the vote, but the fact is they got the SEC to order ABC to put that vote on the shareholders' ballots uh, and uh, the fact that they could tie up hundreds of thousands of company dollars uh, on a bizarre matter like this gives you some idea of the way they can influence management without having to file libel suits. A similar tactic may be seen in, in the, uh, the apparent attempts by Senator Jesse Helms and, and some of his supporters to take over CBS. The, in fact, the umbrella organization behind those efforts, uh, I think it's called Fairness in Media, has a considerable overlapping with the Accuracy in Media folks. Uh, and AIM is, is uh, neither AIM nor Fairness in Media are the, the, the only uh, groups of this kind, although AIM is the most well-known. Another that Don mentioned is David Atlee Phillips' uh, Challenge Group, which was set up precisely to raise money to sponsor libel suits. I could go on with Accuracy in Media horror stories, but I, I want to move now to their friends. Uh, I refer to the pseudo-journalists and their attacks on other journalists as... KGB dupes are worse. The, the, the AIM attacks on Bonner and Asner and, and the day after have their counterparts in the world of the right-wing propagandists, such as Arnaud de Borgrave, Robert Moss, Claire Sterling, Georgianne Geyer, and Michael Ledeen, who don't admit to working for or having worked for the CIA and other intelligence agencies, and such as Paul Henze, Cordmeyer, and others who do admit it. Uh, I might point out that the, uh, sometimes the media don't help us to know who is who. Uh, we were investigating a story involving Turkey, and one of the items is a letter Paul Henze wrote to the New York Times extolling human rights in Turkey. And the Times in the italics at the end of the letter identified Henze as a former uh, National Security Council staff member, not pointing out that he'd been the CIA chief of station in Ankara for a number of years. These journalists I'm talking about take the AIM line in print and accuse everyone who does not accept their paranoid delusions, at the very least, of giving aid and comfort to the enemy. For example, when Michael Dobbs of the Washington Post wrote a series of articles expressing his opinion that the would-be assassin of the Pope was a right-wing Turkish fanatic with no ties to Bulgaria or the Soviet Union, Claire Sterling criticized him in print for, quote, giving credence to the Bulgarian argument, unquote. No discussion of whether one argument or the other might be right or wrong, but it was wrong for him to say that because that was what the Bulgarians were saying. Now, Moss and de Borgrave uh, have carried this to its extreme in their novel The Spike, 
suggesting in essence that the entire liberal media establishment is working for the KGB. Those of us who fret and fume every day over what the New York Times or the Washington Post is saying from, from quite the other perspective find all this a little amusing. Uh, but one of the serious ramifications of this conspiratorial cabal is that in the age of Reagan, the allegations are taken seriously by government officials and agencies, or at least they act like they're taking them seriously. A very good example of this is the Federal Communications Commission complaint by the CIA last fall. Last fall, ABC's World News Tonight referred in several broadcasts to the allegations of a veteran and former police informant who had worked for the CIA. He asserted that the CIA had considered assassinating Honolulu investment banker Ronald Rewald, a, a, an admitted CIA agent, because the scams in which he had been involved for the CIA were coming apart at the seams. Since assassination is the only thing the CIA is theoretically prohibited from doing, and since the best defense is a good offense, the CIA vigorously denied the allegation, uh, as opposed to their standard no comment. Even though the network duly reported the denial, the CIA filed a complaint with the FCC under the Fairness Doctrine. It argued first that it was not allowed time to respond to the charges in violation of the Fairness Rules, and also that the agency was being charged with conspiracy to commit murder and accusation of moral turpitude, which was covered by the FCC's personal attack rule. This is an anthropomorphizing of the agency that I couldn't understand, but that was the gist of their uh, complaint. The FCC threw out the complaint this past January, but on very peculiar grounds, that the CIA had not presented evidence of the, quote, controversiality, unquote, of the allegation that the CIA engaged in such seriously illegal acts, or that the issue was the subject of vigorous debate in the community. Um, it's unclear whether the FCC thinks it's obvious that they do do such things, or obvious that they don't do such things. Uh, but what is clear is that they entertained the complaint. They felt they had jurisdiction. They felt that a government agency can resort to the fairness doctrine if it disagrees with a news report. The implications of this kind of attack on broadcast media are immense. Uh, there is in the FCC reports no skepticism of the very idea that protective devices such as the fairness doctrine could be used by the government. And indeed, a uh, group related, I believe, to accuracy in media, uh, or in any event, a similar group, has uh, announced that it is going to reinstitute that same complaint uh, as aggrieved individuals. And uh, I don't know that uh, that has actually been formally filed yet. Finally, I just want to touch on some legislation, current and proposed, which relates to this subject. The Intelligence Identities Protection Act is the closest to home for us at Covert Action Information Bulletin. I just want to make a few broad points with respect to the way it fits into the subject of discussion here. What the Act does is severely restrict the coverage of government misconduct in the intelligence field, including coverage of whistleblowing. People mistakenly think the bill relates only to disclosing the names of CIA officers, and in fact, it applies to present and former government employees, agents, informants, and what the law calls, quote, sources of operational assistance, unquote, which is, in essence, anybody who is of any help to any intelligence agency. 
And uh, not just people working for or with the CIA, but also the FBI, the military, and all other intelligence agencies and sub-agencies. And what many people also do not realize is that it applies to information which has been gleaned totally from unclassified sources. Indeed, the chilling effect that this law has had on the press cannot be underestimated. We can be sure that the end result in, in terms of coverage of this very significant area uh, is not what it might be because of the tacit threat of prosecution, at least as telling, uh, if not more so, uh, than the, uh, as the threat of a libel suit. Another point uh, which should be noted is the constriction of the Freedom of Information Act by the current administration, yet another fetter on the press. Um, according to today's New York Times, however, we can all rest easy now that our new attorney general has promised an open administration. Finally, I just want to mention some pending legislation, the proposed anti-terrorism bills. Most of the discussion around this package of barely understood and rabidly right-wing proposed legislation has focused on political organizations, primarily international solidarity and support groups, but the implications for journalists are equally chilling. The major bill creates, or hopes to create, the federal offense of terrorism, which it defines as, and listen carefully, quote, the knowing use of force or violence against any person or property in violation of the criminal laws of the United States or any state, territory, possession, or district with the intent to intimidate, coerce, or influence a government or person in furtherance of any political or ideological objective, unquote. Now, that's pretty heady language. It, first of all, nobody demonstrates or, or protests except with the intent to influence somebody to do something. Uh, what this law means is that if, for example, you were demonstrating for better pay for teachers and somebody threw a rock through a window, it becomes a federal felony. And I might add the maximum penalty is life imprisonment, even death if someone is killed in the course of a demonstration. It also uh, would be a felony to attempt to commit a terrorist act, to procure such an act, or to threaten such an act. This could have very significant implications, for example, for the coverage of upcoming political events. Then there's a companion bill which makes it a similarly serious federal felony to, quote, provide any logistical, mechanical, maintenance, or similar support services to the armed forces or any intelligence agency or their agents of any foreign government faction or international terrorist group, unquote, as defined by the Attorney General in his unreviewable discretion. Mm. Now here too there's a question how the administration might, for example, interpret journalistic coverage of some of the liberation organizations. The right wing clearly interprets what we might call a truthful story about the PLO or the FMLN or the Sandinistas uh, as the furtherance of terrorism. The proposal is to uh, make doing so a serious federal felony. To conclude, and I hope I'm on time, I took the wonderful precaution of setting my stopwatch in front of me and then I forgot to press the button right, when I started. You're right, you're right. And it says zero, 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 so I've hardly spoken at all. Uh, I just want to suggest in concluding that I have been describing only the tip of the iceberg. There is a network of private and governmental forces which are all working together to prevent 
the dissemination of independently gathered information and to bolster the official government line, and we all have to fight constantly against those forces. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from Victor Navasky, who is the author of Naming Names and the editor of The Nation magazine. Thank you. Um, my assignment, at least as I have construed it, is to talk about the penumbra of censorship, uh, self-inflicted censorship, the pressures in day-to-day operations not to tell the whole truth. Uh, if you want to know more about libel, the press, and the control of information than you've already heard and will hear from the other panelists. I recommend that you read next week's Nation, which has an article by Walter and Miriam Schneer already mentioned, who uh, on, on the right, uh, the new right, and the press. And uh, I think it's an important putting in one place of where we are. Uh, I also um, am interested to see in the audience, in addition to the Schneers, Professor Ullman and Bill Rubin, who uh, have are libel plaintiffs. And my hope is, in the question period, we can find out whether they're the Westmoreland and Sharon of the left, or whether uh, we have something more serious to learn, which I expect will be the case. Uh, I want to talk about a legal case, but one which does not involve libel, and one in which the government is not involved, the CIA or the FBI, or any part of the government except indirectly, and where the motive of the plaintiff was commercial rather than political. And uh, I cite this case in which the nation found itself as a defendant, not to argue the constitutional or legal rights and wrongs. The Supreme Court will be announcing their decision, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps next week, uh, any day, uh, but to show the potential impact of a modest bit of commercial, commercial litigation brought by people who consider themselves friends of the First Amendment on the day-to-day life of a small magazine. Uh, and, and along the way, perhaps, to show how even such modest litigation uh, is affected by the political and cultural climate of the Reagan years and can provide a series of seductive invitations to self-censorship, whether or not they are accepted. Um, Here, briefly, I hope, are the facts, Uh, at least as they look to us. Our moderator uh, may have a slightly different view. She uh, uh, played a, a different role in the case. been a possible obstruction of justice in connection with his pardon of uh, Richard M. Nixon. According to Ford, one day General Haig came to him in the Rose Garden. He said that we've got, in effect, we have the smoking gun tapes. We've got to get this fella out of here. There are five possible ways we might do it. And he listed four ways. And then he said the fifth way would be if you promise to pardon him, perhaps he'll agree to resign. Uh, Ford then said uh, that he said nothing about the conversation. He did ask uh, Haig, whether it's possible to pardon an individual before he's in, been indicted. Haig said, the White House has checked it out, and it is. Ford said he went home, sleep on it, didn't say anything to Betty about it. In fact, he didn't mention it to anybody until the next morning 
when uh, one of his aides was asking him what Haig was talking to him about, and he uh, told his aide about the conversation, and the aide said, and then what did you say? And Ford said, uh, I didn't say anything. And Haig said, gee, and the aide said, gee, that could be a time bomb. And uh, another aide, he told the conversation to, and the aide said, and then what did you say? And Ford said, I didn't say anything. And uh, the aide, uh, again, said that, that this could cause uh, great problems. And so Ford, Haig then said he called, excuse me, Ford then said he called General Haig and read him the following statement. And then he reads Haig's statement saying, nothing that I did or didn't say to you yesterday means that I did in, or didn't intend to make any recommendation on a pardon one way or the other. Uh, well, on the theory, our theory was, of course, that this may have, that that, that was a conversation designed to, to possibly designed to uh, cover up a, a deal. And in any event, it was news. And uh, so on the theory that we had something of a scoop, uh, I quickly wrote up a story of around 2,000 words, about 500 of which were quotations. And most of those were from documents, which I assumed to be in the public domain, such, such as the note which Ford uh, read over the phone to General Haig. We also had a researcher call Harper and Rowe, the publisher of the book, to see if they had any serialization plans, what was the print order, etc. And she was told that Time, Inc. was running a portion, the Reader's Digest was running a portion, print order of about 50,000 was expected. We put these facts in the story, we sent it over to our lawyer who read it, said he thought we were within the limit set by the copyrights uh, fair use doctrine. Uh, but that it was close, and of course we didn't want to get in a lawsuit. Did we think they, were su they would sue? I said, of course not. There's no, no way they would sue. Uh, as a matter of fact, the editor-in-chief of Harper and Row was a good friend of mine, I thought. Uh, uh, we had had lunch a few weeks before. Our advertising manager had invited uh, him to lunch, and he said he would go to lunch if I would come. So I went to the lunch talked about plans for the new nation and uh, why Harper and Rowe should come in on our annual advertising contract. Um, anyway, I had the belief also that it was uh, not proper for a, I, I believe that it was proper for a president or any other public official to copyright and make a profit from his memoirs, but I believe that the inflated prices these memoirs were going for uh, had to do with the news value of them which was not copyrightable, and that the president or Kissinger or anyone else had no inherent right to make millions of dollars off of public papers based on public business accumulated while on the public payroll and withheld from the rest of us for profit. Uh, I believe that I or any other researcher should have access to the same material at the moment that uh, former President Ford had access to it for publication. And uh, so we published the article. The next thing that happened was that I received a call from one Herbert Mitgang, who we'll hear from later, uh, of the New York Times and of this panel, asking if I had a comment on the telegram Harper and Rowe had sent the nation, requesting that we cease and desist excerpting the Ford memoirs, which was not what we had done. Uh, since we had not received any such telegram, I couldn't comment except to say what I have already said. Uh, when we finally did receive the telegram a couple of days later, uh, it threatened a lawsuit. And so if we had any plans to write other news about uh, arising from the Ford manuscript, they conceivably might have been chilled. We didn't have plans to write other news in the Ford manuscript. It was a very boring manuscript 
and uh, uh, we let that lie. Some months later, Harper and Rose sued. They asked for $12,500, which they said was the amount of money Time, Inc. Uh, didn't pay them for its planned excerpt. Time canceled its excerpt after the nation's story appeared. In later discovery proceedings, it turned out that Time, uh, too, had found the chapter on the pardon to be newsworthy, and had even offered to publish a week earlier, but Harper and Rose said no, presumably because the books were not in the stores, and so Time said, then we won't publish anything, and that's the suit came about. Uh, Harper and Rose, chief executive officer, also stated at a meeting of Penn, uh, of Penn's Freedom to Write Committee, in a debate we had, that the reason he, uh, they brought the suit was to make a test case under the new copyright law. Uh, to us, it felt like harassment. To them, it was test case. Uh, I spent the next few weeks attempting to arrange legal representation for the nation. Our own lawyer worked for a small law firm that uh, needed at least part partial compensation for its work, which we couldn't afford. Uh, we were lucky. After a series of meetings, uh, and a lot of paperwork, uh, and perhaps aided by the fact that our editorial board included the former director of the American Civil Liberties Union, and aided by the fact that I had gone to law school with Floyd Abrams, who is a leading First Amendment lawyer, at the end of the road, we ended up as a client of both the American Civil Liberties Union and Floyd Abrams, both taking us on on a pro bono, uh, i.e. free of charge basis. Uh, we considered this poetic justice because we believed that the reason Harper and Rowe had chosen and, the, and Reader's Digest had chosen the nation as a defendant rather than the Washington Post or the New York Times, which uh, uh, two or three times a year published the same kind of piece we do and quote more liberally than we did uh, by our estimations in their pieces, was the assumption that our legal defense would be less formidable, that they would be better off in court fighting a small uh, magazine with a reputation as uh, left liberal, whatever you want to call it. During this period, however, uh, and at about the time we were talking to the ACLU about representing us, and I should say that uh, the estimates of what this legal representation has amounted to uh, have varied from uh, a quarter of a million dollars to a story in the Washington Journalism Review, which puts it at two to three million dollars this, this month. Uh, during this period, a dispute arose between the American Civil Liberties Union and other groups uh, that Bill Schapp and, and others here have been involved in on uh, how to oppose the Names of Agents Bill, which, which Bill Schapp talked about a few minutes earlier. Uh, the, the National Amer American Civil Liberties Union argued that uh, since the legislation, uh, excuse me, the, uh, uh, a number of people argued that since the legislation was unconstitutional, period, it should be opposed, period. The National American Civil Liberties Union had a different point of view. It said that since there were two versions of this legislation up for consideration, and one was worse than the other, and one or the other was going to pass, it had a duty to lobby in favor of the lesser evil uh, of those two bills. Uh, we, uh, so we, it was precisely the kind of issue on which our readers uh, expect some kind of guidance or statement from the magazine, if we have any to give. Uh, 
So with perhaps hundreds of thousands or, or millions, depending on how you count, of free legal work at stake, uh, one might think that if there were ever an occasion for sinning, if not chilling by omission, this was it. Uh, as it happened, we published our editorial. It was bitterly resented by the American Civil Liberties Union, which also resented a piece we ran by a dissident board member arguing that the ACL, ACLU should never deal with non-union suppliers, which they were dealing with. But luckily for us, uh, the ACLU turned out really to believe in free speech. They not only continued to provide legal support throughout the litigation, but also took on a second nation case when we were sued for libel by a sheriff in McAllen, Texas, who uh, our writers described as discriminating uh, against uh, Chicano, Chicanos in the voter registration process and um, because he discriminated against Chicanos in the voter <laughs> registration process. Uh, in any event, there then began hours of depositions, discovery, preparing materials for interrogatories, which took uh, uh, hundreds of, of editor hours of various people's time. They wanted to prove that we had printed the Ford story as part of a plot to increase our magazine circulation. It turned out to be a great embarrassment for everybody when uh, in court, and it came up again at the Supreme Court, the issue had sold something like uh, under 1,000 copies on the newsstand. Uh, we are a 99% subscription magazine, I should say. Uh, I was deposed three times by a battery of high-priced attorneys, which uh, uh, at that point caused uh, our lawyer to estimate that they had, uh, right at the beginning, spent about a quarter of a million dollars to recover their $12,500. How to measure, measure this loss in, time, in terms of uh, investigative stories not undertaken, investigative ideas not thought about, uh, who knows? Uh, we prepared for a trial and were assigned to a judge who happened to be a Nixon appointee but had a reputation, we were told, for fairness. After many postponements, the case went to trial. We introduced three expert witnesses on the question of what is news, since our contention was that the only quotations we used were newsworthy, and since news wasn't copyright, they were within the fair use permitted by the copyright law. Our witnesses, Jermaine, were former president of CBS News, uh, Fred Friendly, Pulitzer Prize winner David Halberstam, and Richard Reeves, who had written a book called A Ford, Not a Lincoln, and is a noted media critic. As it happened, all three of our witnesses had books which came out during the year in which we were asking them to serve as our witness. Um, as it also happens, the nation runs the notoriously independent book review department. Uh, and which frequently ignores or pans the books of our shareholders uh, <laughs> and staff. Uh, but I put to you the hypothetical predicament of a, an editor faced with the question of whether to publish a negative review of a book by a person we are trying to persuade a great personal inconvenience and for no fee to come to court on our behalf. The trial for various reasons was recessed. During the recess, the nation happened to sponsor a meeting at, in support of solidarity in Poland at Town Hall. At this meeting, Susan Sontag gave a speech uh, in which she challenged the left for being too silent on Soviet crimes for too long and observed that indeed if one had to choose during the last 30 years between reading only the nation or only the Reader's Digest, she dared say one would have a better picture of the Soviet Union, truer picture from the Reader's Digest. This, needless to say, was of interest to our readers. Uh, we asked Ms. Sontag's permission 
having learned from the past, to reprint her remarks, which she gave. But part of her enthusiasm was prompted by the fact, for giving this permission to us, was prompted by the fact that the Soho Weekly uh, had printed her speech without her permission. Incensed at the Soho Weekly, she sued them. As it happened, one of the lawyers, the lawyer she retained, Leon Friedman, was a lawyer who was helping us on our brief. Uh, he explained to us that the Sontag case and our case were distinguishable <laughs> on any one of a number of grounds. Nevertheless, as a matter of policy and law and of common sense and public relations, we believe she should not have sued uh, because the result would be to cut back on the flow of information. So who was the Sontag case assigned to? You guessed it, Judge Owen, the same judge who is sitting in our case. Now, Floyd Abrams is the last lawyer in the country who would tell a client not to print anything. But we wanted to have our say on the Sontag suit of Soho Weekly and all that. And in this situation, uh, he did say to us that he would, he is the last lawyer in the country who would tell his client not to print anything. But could we please show him what we wrote before it went into the magazine? <laughs> You're not, I hope, he said, going to say anything about the court. Censorship? No. But we got the message. <laughs> Our case was argued in the spring. In May, the final briefs were filed, but the judge had yet to render his verdict. In the meantime, however, he had rendered his verdict in another, much more important case, Alger Hiss's petition for a writ of quorum nobis to set aside the original verdict in the Hiss case. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to attempt to recapitulate his case is even. <laughs> but I will say it is a case of the utmost real and symbolic significance then and now, and it has come to constitute one of the battlegrounds of Cold War I. In brief, in that petition, Hiss argued that his conviction for perjury, he, uh, he denied that he knew Whitaker Chambers and past State Department papers should be overturned because new evidence secured under the Freedom of Information Act showed that the government interfered with the defense of the case in a way which deprived him of a fair trial. After four years of mulling over Hiss's claim, Judge Owen said no, he found Hiss's claim unwarranted. There was virtually no press attention given to the judge's highly technical opinion. There was a paragraph or two in the Times, not much anywhere else. A few weeks later, uh, Bill Rubin, sitting in the back of the room, scholar of the case, contacted the nation and claimed that he could document that more than 100, there were more than 100 factual errors in the judge's opinion. Not arguments, but factual errors. To do so, he said, would require a considerable amount of space. And the probability was that if we didn't run such a piece, nobody would. Uh, our thought was that if what Bill's essay was what it was billed to be, as it were, and we published it, it might influence the appeals process in the his case at a critical time and perhaps help make history. The other fact was, of course, that a negative opinion in our own case could cause real harm to the magazine at a time when our publisher was trying to erase the annual deficit. Uh, what would you do uh, in a case like that? And would you call it censorship? Uh, the, uh, Floyd uh, did not advise us to do one thing or the other, but uh, for technical reasons, as it happened, we couldn't fit the thing in the magazine, fortunately. <laughs> uh, it ran hundreds of pages. We published it as a pamphlet 
which unfortunately came out a few days after the court turned down the appeal. Now, I hope none of this has sounded self-congratulatory. The nation can go its own way, first because the American Civil Liberties Union and, a Wall, and Wall Street law firm are paying the bill, second because we don't have that much to lose. As Harper and Rose board chairman said when asked what he expected to get from us if he won, he said a few folding chairs and some pencils. <laughs> Third, because nobody tells us what to do. We have a, our publisher has an agreement that we have total editorial independence. But finally, because we don't know any better. It seems to me the challenge in the months and, and, and years ahead for all of us is to help educate our friends and colleagues and Congress and even the administration not to know any better. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. We will be all anxious to hear the Supreme Court's uh, final word on the subject and decision, which I guess we do expect shortly. Um, Herbert Mitgang, sitting next to Victor, is an author, playwright, and cultural correspondent for the New York Times. Herbert? Yeah, hi. Uh, Victor reminded me that I called him about the Gerald Ford case, but uh, while I waited anxiously, he never called me about my Richard Nixon case. Uh, uh, there was an era of snatching journalism in the last four years uh, where uh, galleys were uh, picked up and reproduced. And it was a very nice little game while it lasted. And uh, uh, in, uh, in my case, uh, when Richard Nixon was publishing his first book, I uh, was able through various uh, means to uh, uh, obtain the outline for the book and uh, uh, detailed information of what he had written in it from sources here in Germany, England, and elsewhere. And uh, it was uh, very much under wraps. Uh, and uh, the, uh, nowadays, uh, that sort of thing uh, does, isn't very popular anymore. You're handed the book by the publisher in order to promote it and get it <laughs> banned in Boston or exposed in some way. <laughs> Uh, but while I didn't get a call from Victor, I did get a call from the Western White House. And Mr. Nixon's emissaries issued a statement saying that uh, uh, what I had written about the contents uh, of his book, uh, and in order to give it some authenticity, I was able to mention the, t the type size, elite, and that it was double-spaced rather than triple-spaced, and the kind of paper. And so uh, uh, th at that point, although they called me a liar, uh, I was able to uh, come back, and uh, it did not lead to a lawsuit. But bouncing off that particular very important decision coming up on the nation, which I believe they will win, uh, coming up a little more uh, to the present, uh, there is another man in that great trio uh, of uh, 
Americans uh, called Henry Kissinger, who, uh, who planted, who very cleverly planted his, again, papers uh, that were, for which he was on the public payroll uh, in the Library of Congress so that no journalists or historians could get access to the Kissinger papers. Uh, and uh, instead, uh, he put, I think, a 25-year limitation uh, on their use, by which time he will have used all the material for his own books and television appearances, uh, pay for the bodyguards. And uh, I think that uh, the Reporters Committee uh, for Freedom uh, in Washington is trying to obtain access to these papers which were very cleverly given to the Library of Congress so that nobody else could uh, gain access to them. And I hope that the outcome of the nation case will give some good ammunition to the efforts to obtain uh, access uh, to the other public papers uh, uh, gathered by Mr. Kissinger while he was on the public payroll uh, so that uh, we can shed a little more light on his uh, reign and uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, uh, the, uh, I wanted to talk generally about uh, the different kinds of censorship uh, uh, that uh, I've encountered over a lot of years now and worked under. Uh, I've worked under uh, military censorship when I was uh, an army correspondent and managing editor of Stars and Stripes and around the Mediterranean. And I've worked under uh, non-censorship uh, during the Vietnam War, there was no formal censorship, although uh, in a way that was uh, a worst kind of censorship. Uh, uh, and uh, finally, I want to talk about uh, or mention uh, the uh, subtle censorship, which is called self-censorship. Uh, the military censorship, uh, one could understand quite well. And uh, I was faced with it once quite amusingly, in retrospect, uh, when uh, a, a general with two pearl-handled revolvers uh, slapped a soldier in a military hospital in Sicily, and I was the managing editor at that time in Sicily. Mm. And uh, although I knew uh, we had heard about it, we knew that we couldn't uh, print it, uh, <clears throat> uh, but the Associated Press broke the story, and uh, I, we uh, were faced with a problem of confidence with our readers because we knew that uh, the clippings would be sent back from the States to wherever we were around the Mediterranean, and uh, saying that, uh, uh, this is what happened in your own area, why aren't you printing it? And so uh, 
I put the Associated Press in story into the paper. And uh, it then went through censorship and uh, various uh, colonels and generals had to look at it and finally it went up to General Patton himself who turned down the line uh, to the lowest general uh, and told him, General, uh, you make the decision yourself for the good of the service. And uh, so it didn't get into the paper. <laughs> so that was military censorship in a war zone that was understandable. Uh, when I was uh, uh, executive editor of CBS News for three years during the height of the Vietnam War, uh, there was no censorship. And uh, so what you had uh, was a uh, vague... Uh, and difficult decisions uh, being made very often on the scene, as I recall the Assistant Secretary uh, of Defense uh, had said he would lie uh, for the good of the country in reporting to uh, the press. And uh, I had to uh, issue certain directives to our correspondents about uh, that war, and it made me uh, about what could be reported, because uh, a lot of the correspondents did not quite know uh, how to do this uh, business of trust and being on the team. That is one of the euphemisms that I'll mention in a moment, where you're supposed the government would like you to be on the team. Uh, which is always, uh, which is always more difficult when you are in a war or non-war situation like the CIA uh, has going on in uh, Central America. Uh, in a in a sense, that sort of thing is more difficult than when you are reporting arms or military actions. The, uh, uh, there was a, uh, we all knew that airplanes from the United States uh, were bombing uh, Vietnam for, that were based in Thailand. Everyone was keeping it a big secret. And uh, I had to make the decision on whether to reveal the, this secret one time when one of our correspondents brought back the film, the bases there, and I said, uh, yes, uh, put it on the air. Uh, at that point, I made a division between uh, what was military and what was policy. And uh, it may have some relevance to things like uh, the war in Central America, the secret war in Central America or wherever else we may be uh, involved in the Philippines or so on, backing dictator and authoritarian nations. And yes, there is a distinction between authoritarian <laughs> and totalitarian. Uh, the, uh, uh, I said that uh, if you are reporting, for example, we would not show film of four planes, four bombers, 
in a box. Because if you showed film of four bombers in a certain flying pattern, then somebody with an anti-aircraft gun on the other end would know how to shoot down those planes. And of course, nobody wants to see uh, your people shot down uh, because of what you have done. However, the distinction between being the direct cause of knowledge to an enemy, in quote, gunner, and revealing the fact that you are involved in an illegal war. Uh, the same situation I was faced with when Morley Safer showed the Marines burning the village of Camney with their Zippo lighters. You remember that was a very important pictorial turning point in 1965 in the history of that war and uh, uh, although there was so-called non-censorship, that film was shown, uh, the government got hold of it and said, don't show that, it shows Americans in a bad light uh, because uh, it shows that uh, here are our boys burning down villager huts. And their line was there were really Viet Cong tunnels underneath. And uh, we couldn't find any pictures of Viet Cong tunnels underneath. Um, and uh, I said this was a uh, valid uh, military action. Uh, nobody could get hurt from it, put it on the air. And uh, it did get on the air and uh, with uh, many phone calls from <laughs> President Lyndon Johnson and others uh, putting pressure against uh, those of us who were involved in that decision. Uh, the, uh, we move on f uh, to, to uh, as some of these are not black and white. Uh, we move on to uh, what exists today uh, in peacetime, and that is self-censorship, which is another way of saying chilling effect, whether it grows out of libel or anything else. And only this week uh, I found four euphemisms in the paper for self-censorship in a time of no censorship. Uh, I got the clips. One was called taste. <laughs> the other one was called ethics. The other one, which has always been a favorite, is called uh, responsible or responsibility. And the fourth one was called uh, patriotism. I was quite shocked to see those big full-page ads uh, last uh, Sunday, and then I think they were repeated Monday, quoting uh, one of the million-dollar journalists, Tom Brokaw, uh, in which uh, he said uh, there was an ad on television news, I know of no more patriotic group than television journalists. That sent up a very big red flag in my mind. 
because, and I, in all fairness to Mr. Brokaw, I should read his next sentence, but we are not mindless cheerleaders. Well, any journalist, book writer, playwright, or anyone else who goes out into the public uh, arts uh, should never have to make a statement about his own patriotism. Question whether he's as patriotic as Dan Rather uh, uh, is something that should never have to come up because uh, the enemy is not the broadcaster. The enemy is sitting right there in Washington. He's a fellow named Mies who used this. He's the Chamber of Commerce, which issued a 119-page report this week with one of those great euphemisms called responsibility and freedom of the press. Uh, and that was a United States Chamber of Commerce report a, a day or two ago. And uh, whenever I see the word responsive, uh, the phrase usually goes, a free and responsible press. <laughs> I always think those are contradictions. <laughs> In order for a free press to be responsible, it should be rephrased, a free and irresponsible press. <laughs> because if Seymour Hirsch and a few others discover a Miley massacre, or somebody discovers four nuns killed in Central America, you're not on the team by reporting that. You're being irresponsible. But uh, that, uh, I think, apart from everyone in this room, or nearly everyone except those who may be recording this for other purposes, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I think that uh, we, uh, uh, we should uh, be looking and speaking over the heads of ourselves and this audience uh, to educate a lot of people about uh, where the enemy is. If Mr. Buchanan is sitting there as Reagan's director of communications, I expect a lot of lies to come out of the White House. <clears throat> because he's on the team. And uh, I think that uh, journalists and book writers uh, should get off the team. Uh, and that is the only way to be uh, responsible. I know my friend here has got a big, long speech. He's got about five minutes, actually. <laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, uh, talk about... Uh, the two cases for a moment uh, uh, that were partly the news pegs for this occasion, and then Harriet can speak with greater authority on them. But it struck me as, a, as an amateur historian that uh, both the Westmoreland and the Sharon case should not have been in the courts. The Westmoreland, uh, because... Uh, uh, I feel that uh, in both those situations and in most, if not all, libel situations uh, involving public figures and especially people in high office uh, 
history, the workings back and forth of the press should be operative. Let history judge because, uh, uh, as we know, the evidentiary rules do not permit the full facts uh, to emerge as they might in a news story or a book or a broadcast if it's done right. Uh, in a criminal case, uh, you have a different standard, and that is uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, you have a standard of clear and convincing evidence. Well, if you had to be a journalist or a writer in other fields and had to put only things that were beyond a reasonable doubt, or with clear and convincing evidence, you would not be able to read half the things that are done. Uh, you should be able to make errors, uh, quote sources uh, as much as possible, occasionally uh, get material uh, from sources who do not uh, wish to be quoted, uh, uh, and get it all out front. Uh, uh, specifically, on the uh, Sharon matter, if anywhere, that case should have been tried uh, in Israel, uh, where, uh, because he was taking it here, uh, where some of the Peace Now uh, groups, similar to 10,000 who were marching against that Lebanese uh, action, uh, in Tel Aviv the other day, uh, where those people could be a jury of peers. He knew he couldn't stand up uh, before that kind of uh, audience, and so he, uh, it was uh, uh, brought uh, to uh, a New York uh, a jury in a, a very uh, difficult decision, but he got his uh, political zingers in, and uh, uh, the, about the only good outcome to me of that case was that it revealed uh, something most of us knew for, oh, about 40 years of reading Time magazine, uh, that uh, it was not the last word all the time in mm -hmm. backing up uh, the truths found by its uh, repertorial staff, that it had its own agenda. That was uh, an amusing uh, sidelight to have from that uh, case. In the case of the Westmoreland case, uh, there, uh, CBS News uh, uh, put the wrong show on the air. Uh, and so we had a situation where Westmoreland, uh, in a sense, was in the dock uh, uh, responsible for decisions being made uh, by uh, in a war that was prolonged with 25,000 more deaths uh, by uh, Nixon, Kissinger, the Bundy Boys, and uh, the Rostows. Uh, they were the ones uh, uh, who uh, walk around uh, freely. Uh, Westmoreland, uh, a, uh, a, a naive soldier in every way. All of us who had been in uh, Vietnam uh, knew that uh, you had to, of course you had to count uh, the VC 
uh, in the order of battle. Uh, because uh, in many ways the VC were more dangerous than a stand-up uh, man uh, uh, from North Vietnam along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was far more dangerous uh, fighting a uh, partisan uh, than it was to fight uh, a uniformed soldier because you didn't know who he was. And uh, a friend, ally and enemy had the same skin color. Uh, among other uh, things uh, for identification. So you had a uh, situation of Westmoreland uh, uh, being up there uh, and CBS doing one tiny little facet of the Vietnam War. Uh, Charles Moore, who was out there for a long time and who's material, by the way, was rewritten uh, by Time magazine uh, to make uh, things not look as bad as they were before he joined the Times, uh, was able to, uh, uh, told me uh, that everybody uh, knew that uh, the enemy uh, uh, order of battle count was wrong. Uh, and that's why there was a case where another libel case where history uh, should have been uh, the uh, final judge. Uh, <clears throat> uh, finally, I'd say that uh, uh, I'm not as pessimistic about uh, uh, the chilling effect of libel laws. I believe that a few less lawyers uh, uh, should, not, uh, sh should not be involved uh, reading the uh, advanced galleys of uh, books that uh, we write, of plays that are put on, and uh, uh, let the chips fall where they may. And I also have confidence that reporters who are onto a good story, nobody is ever going to stop Seymour Hirsch and Jeff Girth and uh, a lot of other uh, reporters uh, from uh, letting that story out, even if they have to. Uh, uh, take uh, a uh, broadside and tack it up against the walls of this building or a church or anywhere else. Thank you. Herb, I don't want to. I don't want to insult you, but I thought that defense of irresponsible journalism was most patriotic. <laughs> On the other hand, an attack on libel lawyers may be going too far. <laughs> um, the last speaker is John F. Baker, who is the editor-in-chief of the Publishers Weekly. John? Okay. I'm sorry I have no uh, very uh, notable stories to tell about uh, censorship of myself. Perhaps uh, writing about book publishing isn't uh, an occasion to provoke much of it. I can only think of two instances both perhaps rather trivial compared to some of those we've heard today. On one occasion, we uh, interviewed uh, Erica Jong, and as she so often does, she said, fuck, out loud, and uh, we printed that as part of the interview, and uh, I was called on the carpet and uh, told never to print that word again in our pages. And uh, you might call that sort of uh, post-factum censorship. I uh, on a much more recent occasion, we... Um, um, as, as anybody who follows the publishing scene may have observed that uh, uh, 
Gulf and Western, which owns Simon & Schuster, seems to be making itself into uh, the largest publishing conglomerate in the world. And um, shortly after they acquired Prentice Hall, um, we ran a rather hapless story about the, um, the fact that um, one of Prentice Hall's subsidiaries had um, fired about 40 people. And uh, it turned out to be more or less true. That the numbers may have been a little out, but close. Um, the real problem was that we said in the wake of the takeover, they fired about 40 people. Whereupon Dick Snyder, who's a, a man who doesn't uh, mince words, called up in a fine rage and said, the hell are you talking about? You know, well, we're very close to them and there's nothing to do with this and they were having a terrible <laughs> year anyway and et cetera, et cetera. So we had to do another story plus a little apology. Um, again, sort of post-factum censorship. However, since people haven't been, it seems to me, uh, discussing actual libel uh, a great deal in the course of the evening to date, uh, and I assume most of you here are working writers, I just wanted to uh, run down a few of the things that it seems to me, um, as editor of PW, uh, some of the trends that seem to be at work in the, uh, in the book business at the moment. Um, in, a, in a current issue, in fact, we have a an interesting piece, I think, called What Can You Say in a Book, in which we have a couple of dramatized scenarios, one dealing with a, uh, a non-fiction manuscript, an investigative piece of journalism, and the other a novel in which uh, um, somebody complains that they have been um, recognizably created as a fictional character and in a, in a libelous manner. The introduction to this, which is by um, uh, Harry Johnston... The third, who's the, oddly enough, one of the legal counsel for Time, Inc., no significance otherwise, I think, um, said that examining recent cases involving libel for writers, the, the fact that um, the Times versus Sullivan case affords substantial protection to the publishers of defamatory material does not seem to have changed substantially in the last few years. However, he said, there has been a notable erosion, erosion of procedural devices that accompanied Times versus Sullivan, particularly in the erosion of the summary judgment doctrine, whereby a case was presented to a judge who would then, on the, uh, the strength of what he saw as the evidence on either side, would probably dismiss the thing without ever coming to, uh, to trial and before a jury. Um, obviously, the uh, defendants in libel cases welcomed summary judgment because it generally meant that the plaintiffs had no reasonable case to offer. However, goes on Andrews, um, summary judgment is now no longer as readily available as it once was. And he points out that Chief Justice Warren Burger, in a recent case involving Senator William Proxmire, who used to uh, give a golden fleece of the month to uh, uh, people who were accused by him of defrauding the American taxpayer in one way or another. I just thought he could have given one every day, but it was only once a month. Um, Chief Justice Warren Burger, says Andrews, seemingly went out of his way, Johnson, seemingly went out of his way in a footnote to suggest that summary judgment did not fit libel cases in which actual malice was the issue. Um, I don't need to get a great deal into that, I think, except that he does go on to say that um, plaintiffs' libel lawyers are getting much more clever and adroit with the rules governing libel cases. 
during the high watermark of protection for publishers from libel, it had been established that, for example, mere failure to investigate possibly libelous material before publication would not constitute actual malice, nor would a failure to seek out and interview a person being written about, uh, nor would failure to check out available morgue files or failure to reveal the sources of disputed information. Pretty hefty safeguards there, I think you'll agree. Not one of these things, he says, could justify an inference of publication with actual malice. But what he goes on to say, rather alarmingly, is what the libel plaintiff's lawyers uh, tend to do these days is to get a little bit on each of those things. He didn't interview the person, he didn't go to the morgue, uh, he didn't um, attempt to talk to anybody about it, he didn't, um, wasn't willing to reveal his sources, and say, well, judge, maybe any one of these standing alone doesn't work, but the presence of all of them together means that you shouldn't grant summary judgment, but instead should let the case go to the jury. I think in view of what's been said here tonight already, I don't need to say much about um, the fate of libel suits that generally go to the jury. The jury, for whatever reason, seems to have taken it into its head against the media lately. They seem to dislike people disputing what seems to them the common wisdom. A lot of smart alecky journalists, what do they know? Um, and a case that goes to the jury, more often than not, uh, results in a judgment uh, for the plaintiff and against the defendant, uh, which, curiously enough, are um, much more often than not reversed on appeal. So what you generally get in the pattern of libel cases these days is uh, if it goes to the jury trial, they find against the defendant in libel cases, it's then appealed, and in three cases out of four of uh, most of the ones that uh, Johnston surveyed, the um, appeals court ruled the other way. Here is a typical way of that a lawyer might attempt to um, restrain publication, cool or chill the author's and or publisher's ardor. This is a hypothetical letter, but I've seen a number like them. Um, this is, once again, in this piece that we just published, from the law offices of Dewey, Fulham and Howell. Uh, dear sirs, <laughs> we are the attorneys of Joseph Highpower, about whom we are advised Lively Press is about to publish a book called Mr. Chairman. Based upon reliable information, we understand that the book is to contain accusations of immoral, unethical, and illegal activities on the part of Mr. Highpower, all of which charges are completely unfounded. Unless you agree to allow my client to review a copy of the final version of the manuscript prior to publication, to allow my client to correct these serious and damaging factual errors, we will be forced to pursue drastic legal remedies against both the publisher and the author. Uh, not by any means an atypical um, letter, and uh, in the course of the scenario that follows, the um, publisher's lawyer discusses with the author uh, his sources for what he's alleging in the book and ends by concluding that uh, they don't really need to show the manuscript. He thinks this is a fishing expedition, and uh, in effect he's telling the uh, lawyers to put up or shut up. I mention that as a fairly typical um, sort of case that can, can come up and very much chill or cool the um, uh, investigative zeal of uh, a journalist, a, an author, or a publisher. 
Um, let me run down very briefly a few of the, uh, the books that have been involved in one kind or another of censorship, either by libel or other forms of suppression in the last few years. These are ones that I picked out quite readily from our files. One of them you've probably heard about, uh, a book by Gerald Colby Zil Zilg about DuPont called Behind the Nylon Curtain. Um, this was an interesting one because DuPont didn't sue for libel. What they did was uh, go to the book club which had chosen the book as, a, uh, as a, an alternate choice, I think, and suggest that perhaps this was an unwise alternate choice and persuaded the book club to drop it, went to the publisher and said, um, with all sorts of dire threats, no doubt, that uh, it seemed uh, that this um, was a book that probably uh, wasn't, hadn't been worth publishing and perhaps they shouldn't um, make too much of an effort on its behalf. Uh, Zilg took the, uh, both the publishers and the book club to court claiming that um, you know, they had been persuaded by DuPont to, in effect, drop the book. It was, in fact, published in a very small edition and promptly uh, disappeared. Um, he won the first um, round and then lost on appeal, and uh, the story has a somewhat happy ending because uh, another publisher picked up the book and uh, Zilg added an enormous <laughs> amount of more um, accusatory information about uh, DuPont than he had in the first edition and uh, the book is currently in print and selling quite well. Um, the, uh, another interesting case was uh, a woman who wrote a book about Catherine Graham, the uh, publisher of the Washington Post. Mm. Um, she hadn't had much experience before, as Nana as a book author had written a few, uh, a few articles and uh, the publishers were pleased enough. They didn't um, check anything out very carefully. <coughs> frankly, book publishers tend not to check things out very carefully. Uh, they're generally um, somewhat understaffed, and uh, the staffs are somewhat underpaid, and uh, they don't check things as carefully as, um, as uh, magazines and newspapers are, are inclined to do, although, of course, you'd think they would have more time to do so. In any case, they took uh, most of what the author said about uh, Catherine Graham on trust, and started sending the book around for, uh, for comment and so forth, and the manuscript fell into the hands of uh, some of the people who'd been mentioned in the book, including uh, Ben Bradley, the uh, uh, executive editor of the Washington Post, uh, who uh, promptly fired back a long memo citing 39 uh, errors about himself, which were quite provably uh, incorrect, and uh, uh, somebody whom she'd named as the deep throat in the CIA and the uh, Watergate case also uh, sent back a, an angry letter saying that this was demonstrably untrue and so forth and so on. And um, the publisher quietly walked away from the book. Um, once again, she got to keep a fair amount of money. She sued them for several million, and uh, rather than drag it all out through the courts, the publisher settled, as I recall, for $100,000. Um, possibly more than she'd have got from the book had it been sold. Who knows? A peculiar ending in that particular case. Anyway, you've heard a fair amount about uh, Donald Freed's book, uh, Death in Washington. Uh, I should mention his publisher, Lawrence Hill, an extremely uh, courageous publisher in, uh, in Connecticut who uh, believes in fighting all the way. It looks at the moment, the way the case is going, as if uh, it will turn out to be a major victory for people in the, um, the CIA banding together and uh, attempting to intimidate anybody writing about them. Another peculiar uh, case not long ago, which never really made it to the courts but uh, caused somewhat of a flurry in publishing circles, was a book called The Media Monopoly by uh, 
uh, a media critic called Ben Bagdikian, um, a copy of which came into the hands of, um, uh, once again, Mr. Snyder at Simon & Schuster. Um, Bagdikian had uh, suggested somewhere in the book that some uh, controversial book about Gulf and Western had in fact been killed by Simon & Schuster, and Snyder wrote back uh, demanding that uh, this part be withdrawn or else uh, a suit would follow and so forth. I don't think uh, the publisher, which was a small publisher in Boston, uh, gave way to, this, to any of this, and uh, the book went forward as planned. There were, you've probably also heard, I think, about um, Kitty Kelly, Kelly's efforts to write a, uh, uh, a biography unauthorized of Frank Sinatra and his uh, equally enthusiastic efforts to stop it, uh, once again with the threat of a large suit and all sorts of what... Uh, subsequently seems to have been uh, considerably tainted evidence, uh, you know, people calling up with funny voices and uh, saying that she'd never interviewed them when in fact she hadn't pretended to and so forth. Um, once again, quietly dropped in the end and uh, she is, as far as I know, going forward with that book. Uh, another case recently involving the, gov the governor of South Dakota who is suing Peter Matheson and his publisher for... Uh, repeating a lot of uh, derogatory information about him by some Indians in South Dakota. Um, that case is uh, going all over the shop because he wanted it tried in South Dakota. Viking won, his publisher won the uh, right to transfer it to New York. Um, he also lost in an attempt to sue the booksellers who had sold the book. And uh, at the moment, he seems to be losing on all counts, but the, the case itself isn't over. Uh, Another quite interesting recent case, of whom uh, I believe a couple of the uh, participants are here, involves uh, uh, a former CIA agent in, in Iran called Kenneth Love, and uh, a document uh, he wrote about the overthrow of Mossadegh uh, and the installation of the Shah of Iran, which was uh, used by Jonathan Quitney in a recent book called Endless Enemies. Uh, Love is suing, once again, Quitney for, uh, for use of what he calls unauthorized use, as I understand it, of, uh, of that document. The publisher of the book is here, and uh, I believe Harriet has something to do with that too. These are a few examples of the sort of uh, cases that have involved books recently, some libel, some not. Uh, I don't want to uh, cut down too much on the question time, but I would like to throw out a few hints, perhaps, on uh, other ways other than libel suits in which, uh, or threats of same... Uh, by which people can be somewhat intimidated. For instance, um, there's such a thing as... Um, this was discussed in a panel that I um, audited not long ago um, called um, Censorship of the Marketplace. If publishers don't think that the time is appropriate for muckraking books, for books that take a keenly critical look at what's happening in the country today they probably won't be bothered to publish them, whether or not there are threats of libel involved. And the way most publishers these days read the current state of the country is that uh, it is selfish, self-absorbed, greedy, and generally not interested in seeing the status quo overturned. That may be wrong, it may be chicken, but that is what most publishers currently think. I was at the Frankfurt Book Fair last October and uh, I remember walking around the stands with uh, one of the guys who runs South End Press, which is a, a feisty little radical publisher in Boston, mm. and um, saying that, um, you know, he'd been to Frankfurt before 
and going around the stands of the Italian, French, and German publishers, they generally found uh, interest among them for picking up their books for publication in Europe, and, uh, and likewise some properties that Southend might be interested in doing here, you know, about the Greens, about Greenham Common, whatever. He said he'd never seen such a completely apolitical collection of books, even from formerly involved publishers, as he saw uh, last October in Frankfurt. Perhaps rather alarming. Uh, another thing, another kind of Those censorship. American publishers? Hmm? American? No, um, European publishers as well. I'm suggesting, I guess, that uh, just as I think there isn't a great deal of controversial publishing going on here, so uh, the same thing seems to be true currently of former, um, enterprise, more enterprising publishers in Europe. Um, there's also such a thing as um, books that are important and significant being, by and large, ignored by the important reviewing media. And here, uh, uh, as so often is the case, because of its enormous visibility and power, the old uh, Times comes in for its lumps occasionally. Um, once again, the South End Press, a very uh, book, a very notable book uh, by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky about uh, Amer the American presence in the, uh, in the Third World over the years and some of the uh, things it's been up to there. Um, never has been reviewed by the Times, although it's obviously mo both of the authors are uh, major names. It was the only major review it attention uh, it got for a long time in this country was a long review in the Village Voice. And uh, that can be another kind of um, putting away of a book because some editor doesn't like its thesis or doesn't uh, regard it as um, worthy of, uh, of discussion. And uh, I have to... Uh, plead guilty to that on occasion myself. You see, it can, I know we're all on the side of the angels here tonight, but it can work both ways. Uh, not long ago, a, uh, a small right-wing publisher in, uh, in Connecticut, not obviously uh, Lawrence Hill, uh, came to me with a, uh, um, a book that was clearly homophobic. I mean, it was by a man who, uh, in effect, saw the whole country as being uh, uh, rotted from within by uh, homosexuality and uh, and claimed to quote various charts and results of surveys on what the average American felt about all this and so on, and said, nobody is reviewing this book, and uh, it's censorship, and it's unfair. And I took a look at this book, and it seemed to me clearly inflammatory and uh, utterly unworthy, and uh, although it pretended to have a scholarly apparatus, it was clearly the sort of uh, scholarly apparatus you might, I think, see from uh, accuracy in media. And uh, I declined to review it as well, because, once again... You're using your own judgment as to whether or not to give uh, visibility and thereby a certain amount of credence to something that was clearly on the, about the uh, level of the elders of the Protocols of Zion. Um, so I just want to leave you with the thoughts that those uh, are some kinds of censorship, not necessarily involving libel, but uh, simply ways in which Perhaps authors are being less courageous <coughs> about what they want to write. I think a number of publishers certainly being less courageous about what they want to publish. And um, despite the efforts of a comparatively few uh, mainstream publishers, sometimes quite surprising ones like Doubleday, sometimes more expectable ones like Pantheon, but uh, despite those efforts, I find the kind of in-depth reporting of major controversial issues, particularly 
shall we say, pursuing large corporations or very strongly uh, vested interests to be very much mm, diminishing these days. Um, there's quite a striking book coming out shortly called The American House of Saud by a, um, an investigative reporter and congressional aide in Washington, which um, outlines in enormous detail the, um, some of the influence that uh, the Arab oil money has bought in Washington and elsewhere simply because of its promise of uh, vast fortunes to uh, companies that set up there and uh, work with them and so on. And uh, the publisher, who's a small publisher, as I say, uh, told me that uh, you know, the book had been taken around by a reputable agent, and it's a reputable author, to a number of the major houses, most of whom fought shy of it for one reason or another. Not clearly because of its political stance, which uh, um, one would think in publishing uh, uh, a little Arab bashing wouldn't uh, by any means come amiss. And, uh, since, you know, the... However, um, most of the publishers involved turned it down, not, I think, because they were legally afraid of it, but because... Also, the publisher uh, intimated to me they were anxious about uh, some of their um, links, and unfortunately many of the large publishers these days do have links that go out beyond the books they publish. Um, I think that's probably plenty for me, and um, throw it open to questions. Thank you. I think from the panel, we've heard of a variety of attempts uh, by the government and others to engage in some subtle and some not so subtle efforts to censor publications. I think what we all want to guard against are any influences which limit information to the public regardless of its political content. Uh, I think the primary goals of the First Amendment are two to provide as much access to information to the public, to assist people in making political and other decisions about their own lives, and secondly, the, self, the function of self-fulfillment to allow individuals the opportunity to express their own thoughts and ideas and to see them get currency in the society. And I think those two goals are the goals that we all want to see supported. Um, we'd like to open the floor to questions now from the audience, and if you would Please identify yourselves and ask questions to uh, members of the panel. Yeah, over there. Yes. Oh. Okay. The the meeting. Hmm? My name is Rosalind Kramer, and I'm a freelance reporter. I was talking to a group of uh, young reporters, young as far as I'm concerned, and I was trying to start a political discussion because Reagan had done something, and I just had to, I had to discuss it. And I discovered they wouldn't say anything, and I kept on having known a lot of reporters and in the village and knowing that they always talk about politics. I tried to find out why they were all re retreating into the shadows, and they said these guys were from the Daily News and the Post. And at least the guys from the Daily News said that they had been spoken, that an, their attorney had spoken to them, and it, 
uh, he had told them that they can be sued for what's personally for what's on their mind and that this I know that this goes back to some of the libel suits and it seems your personal uh, what was your state of mind when you were writing this or something and I just want none of you have brought this up but I would like to know what you think about this and also I would like to point out something all, women's issues are all the time ignored but the pornography the anti-pornography drive has been very important because it combines what the, the, the right wing does is take an issue, they combine it with something that people are sympathetic with. So they've combined censorship with pornography, which really horrifies women. And anyway, I would like to know if anyone has heard, uh, is, is aware of this, um, this what's on your mind as any kind of pressure in, on journalists or writers now. Bill, you want to? Well, the case you're talking about, I think, involves the, the Tony Herbert case primarily, and I'll say something about that because I feel very ambivalent about it as an absolutist against libel cases, but as a good friend of Tony Herbert's and someone who thinks that he was done wrong by CBS and who thinks that Barry Lando and, and Mike Wallace and, and uh, the program uh, did, in fact, slander him. Uh, the problem had to do with the development of the law around public figures requiring actual malice. Uh, malice is not always something that you can prove with documents or tangible evidence, and the issue that raised the whole point in, in the Tony Herbert case had to do with the selection of interviews to run on the show. In a, in a nutshell, a particular incident in Herbert's book was raised, let's say, with 20 former members of his command. 19 of the 20 members said that all, all 20 were filmed. These were filmed interviews prepared in advance for possible use in the show. 19 of the 20 said the incident as described in Herbert's book was exactly true. The 20th said, no, that's a lot of crap, but it didn't happen like that. The first 19 were not used in the show. The 20th was used in the show. And Herbert's lawyers asked, CBS lawyers, why did you discard those 19 who said he was telling the truth and show the one that said he was lying? And Barry Landau refused to answer that on the ground that this was an inquiry into his state of mind uh, and didn't apply. The Supreme Court, in the decision that I said I feel very ambivalent about, said that if you were going to say that the only way a public figure can sue for libel is to show malice beyond showing untruthfulness, then you have to allow him to inquire into areas which might tend to show the presence or absence of malice. Uh, and Herbert had some fairly clear cases where that question had to be raised, uh, where, where they were as, as slanted as what I'm saying. Uh, th I'm not making this up, this one about 19 saying one way and one saying the other. Uh, th there were a number of instances like that. That's, that's where it came from. I think the, the reporter you were talking to is totally uh, overstating it because uh, even as bad as I think the, the, uh, the impact of the decision may be, that had to do with a completed editorial process. 
that didn't have to do with the, the preliminary inquiry. In fact, the preliminary inquiry, according to the, the CBS people, was exactly the opposite in that case. They said they started the program because they thought that Herbert was right in his accusations about war crimes in Vietnam and the Army was wrong. Uh, and then they said that they, they changed their mind and decided to go after him. Uh, I don't know if other people have, have comments on it. it it's, a, it's a difficult one because I, uh, as I said, that, that was the case where I thought that, that Herbert was clearly uh, destroyed by a show which un unfairly destroyed. Victor, did you want to add something? Well, I would just say I think you're right. It's the malice requirement in the Sullivan case that, that has the courts looking at people's state of mind. And, uh, but to me, the answer to that is to say that public figures should not be allowed to sue for libel. That's one of the things you get up, give up when you go into public life. Yes, over here. Yes. Perhaps if those of you who want to ask questions would like to get over near the microphone, um, we could move along so that more of you can speak. My name is Bob Gibson. I'm a broadcast journalist with some non-commercial radio stations. Uh, there's been a lot of coverage uh, of the censorship of the news media prior to the U.S. invasion of Grenada. Something which has not received uh, as much attention is the fact that the day before that invasion occurred and the American press was barred from covering it, uh, Jessica Savage and her, her escort for the evening uh, tragically died after their car overturned in five feet of water. Now, what I have always felt personally is that uh, uh, that, that uh, her death was not an accident and that basically it served as a message to the Cy Hirsches of the world that from now on they had better keep their noses out of, our, of uh, the military's wars, that if they didn't, they would wind up in the drink like Jessica Savage. Now, Ms. Savage had basically been covering a number of very sensitive subjects on her frontline program. She'd been covering the involvement of government agents in the Greensboro shooting in which Klan and, and Nazi party members gunned down some uh, CWP people in uh, 1979. She'd been covering the use of Nazi war criminals by our intelligence system, notably Klaus Barbie, the Vatican banking scandals, which through the associated P2 Lodge goes back to the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies. Uh, if I could be so bold as to impose my will on the members of the panel in a very small way, what I would like to hear are two things. I would like a simple yes or no reply from each member of the panel <laughs> to the question, do you think Jessica Savage was murdered? And if you would then follow that, your, your one question, your, your one word answer with a discussion of whether or not, uh, such discussion that you feel would be in order. Well, we're certainly not going to require the panel members to answer in any particular way, but if anyone would like to address that issue, uh, they can. Don't know. Don't know. Yes. Hello. My name is Felicia Levin. I'm a citizen. And, well, I want to ask two questions. One, I read that Le Monde is going under or went under or will go under, and will that have a tremendous this effect upon the news coming from France, and also the new thing of uh, capital taking over AABC. Will that have a very deleterious effect upon uh, news from ABC? Will that be an intimidation? Thank you. Would anyone care to answer me? Would anyone care to comment on... It's the zeitgeist, isn't it? Mr. Murdoch is taking over 20th Century Fox, and Mr. Casey... Mr. Casey did not give up his holdings. 
very well-known researcher, historian, Mae Brussel, uh, had some, uh, showed me a clipping just before we started. And um, Mr. Casey, though he no longer sits on the board of directors of Capital News Service, which now controls ABC, but he did not give up his holdings in it until last year, something in itself which is quite extraordinary. That's four years into his uh, administration at CIA. Um, the winds whipping about CBS, uh, all these things. You know, uh, whether Jessica Savage or anyone else uh, was murdered uh, on, on that story or the China Syndrome story or the that sort of story, uh, it's hard to tell. I, in the following the much more boring, the quotidian nature of these secret police files, uh, it's hard to tell where the story ends. I found out quite by accident, for instance, that um, Clive Barnes, for the, I believe, the one and only time in his career, certainly at the New York Times, he was, had a paragraph from his theater review of the play Inquest uh, removed. And when he confronted an editor, and it wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known it, by the way, the review was very long and detailed and, and praiseworthy, you wouldn't have thought anything particularly was missing, but I understand that what he said was that if the asseverations of the play were true, then the Rosenberg case deserved further investigation. He was told you couldn't, according to the material I read, that that couldn't be put on the theater page of the New York Times. Um, he did not make a public issue out of this, and I did not find it out from him. And so I'm very vague on the details. But it's hard to know where pressure ends. We've heard tonight examples of how it begins and threshold questions and uh, conflicts that arise, and especially the, uh, the decision-making process that the nation has discussed was a good way of seeing, in this case, how an editor in good faith thinks about uh, questions. But where they end, how it ends, that's difficult. And where, for instance, in the question of the Warren report, it is very difficult to tell where violence ends and where outright disinformation begins. And in fact, since disinformation and misinformation is a function of the secret police and covert action, it, it is perhaps impossible to separate it from outright violence and psychological warfare whose end is, as in the case of Chile, not just to drive a nation mad, but to bring, to bring uh, soldiers out of their barracks ready to slay uh, in great numbers their fellow countrymen. What about France? Well, let's, let's, let's let the next, uh, next person ask that question. Next okay. question. Thank you. <laughs> My name yes. is Mae Brussel, and Don wanted me to come this evening just to share one document from the government. He brought some documents about the government. And before, I have several. Regarding the press and the way books come out, I take about 10 papers a day, so I recognized a book review when Mark Lane's book, Rush to Judgment, was printed. And it was in the East Coast, and I live in Carmel, and our Monterey Herald had the same book review, and I realized that it was sent across the country to put down this book. And I called a man, a Mr. Wolf, and asked him if he had read the book and confronted him with the information because it was identical to this other review. And I wrote a letter to the editor defending the right of Mark Lane to write Rush to Judgment. And a few years ago, when I wrote to the FBI and other agencies under Freedom of Information, 
The reason they started a file on me in 1967 was because I wrote a letter to the editor defending Rush to Judgment. Mm -hmm. and, and, Don, and Don said this evening, just bring this one item. Jim Garrison had arrested Clay Shaw for a part in the killing of John Kennedy. And I went to New Orleans just to see what he had, because I had been doing the research up to that point since Kennedy was killed. And as soon as I left New Orleans, this was among my files from the FBI. And I think this is pertinent to what Don was trying to tell you and what he's done through the years. As of September 18, 1967, that's a long time ago, they said, due to the fact that Mrs. Brussels has been in contact with Jim Garris in New Orleans, and has made public comments considering the assassination investigation of John Kennedy, we have to disseminate to every agency of the Secret Service, State Department, FBI, about May Brussel. And it's, then they went on to say that my crime at that time in 1967, Mrs. Brussel in the past has expressed great alarm over the fact that the United States is becoming fascist. Due to her thinking, which she has expressed publicly, <laughs> and I hadn't even printed an article uh, until Watergate in 1972. This is 1967 that I said among my friends, no one hardly knew me except the researchers. I hadn't been on a radio show. I've been on 14 years, but it hadn't started then. Due to the fact that she expresses publicly, Dallas and San Francisco FBI would incorporate information into letterhead memorandums suitable for dissemination to the Department of the U.S. Secret Service. And it was to J. Edgar Hoover regarding the Kennedy assassination. So the fear of fascism in 1967 was enough to start a file on me at that time without ever writing anything or being on the air. The first new premature anti-fascist. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next uh, question. Uh, I am uh, Lathrop Voicepe. And I want to know if this is considered sort of a victory for the press. The, the newspaper Spotlight was sued by E. Howard Hunt, and the jury awarded them uh, $600,000 because Spotlight had quoted Machete, am I pronouncing the name correctly? Saying uh, Hunt was a, might be involved in the uh, Kennedy assassination. So the Spotlight just quoted another author and so they were sued by E. Howard Hunt. Uh, Spotlight uh, had the, took the case to court again, and in this case they won. And now for the past five, six weeks, they have been having, each issue they've been having uh, all this stuff about the Kennedy assassination, trying to uh, bring it back to the public's attention. I just want to ask someone if you think that that decision of the jury was a sort of a victory uh, for the you know, freedom of the press. Well, I think what we want to see is verdicts that allow the press to publish uh, as much information as possible and to make it available to people. So if, to that extent, it's a victory for the free press. Yes, my, sir. My name is Tom Lyons. I'm a citizen. Um, Mr. Mitgang made the statement that he did not think libel suits would deter serious investigative reporting. A couple of days ago, I read that the paper in Alton, Illinois, which had to make a $1.3 million um, payment on a libel suit, has cut down on investigative reporting. The suit was com 
And I don't see how newspapers can, with these hefty judgments, continue to support serious investigative reportings. And I was wondering if Mr. Mitgang would respond to that. Well, there was a little item about uh, in Publishers Weekly that uh, three out of four uh, libel cases uh, had been thrown out on summary judgment. But even if we were talking about this before, uh, but uh, even if uh, that is not so, uh, uh, yes, I agree, and that's what we've heard from just about every panelist here tonight, that there is an atmosphere encouraged and emanated from Washington uh, against uh, the press. And so when that happens, naturally you're going to get more uh, efforts uh, to uh, sue networks and newspapers. The point I ended up with, however, was that in spite of that, I think that there are going to be reporters who are going to say, and editors uh, and publications, mostly small, and I hope large, who will say publish and be damned and uh, take their risks. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Michael, and uh, I want to address this to Mr. McGang also. Um, as far as uh, you're speaking about uh, how reporters are somewhat coerced or co-opted to being team players, I'd be interested to know uh, a further elaboration of exactly what strategies or techniques the State Department or the administration uses on reporters to make them uh, feel dependent upon official news and also to feel devoted to giving the administration a certain um, uh, response, a favorable response. And I would like to hear maybe more elaboration. Well, you've just that. had appointed in the Reagan administration a, uh, a journalist who is obviously a uh, right-wing partisan, Pat Buchanan, learned to lie under the Nixon administration <laughs> and uh, uh, continues. Uh, I don't think he's going to change uh, his spots uh, for Mr. Reagan. Uh, from the reading of his column in, uh, that ran uh, in the, the New York Post, uh, you could see that this was uh, uh, not a, a, an objective journalist, but a cheerleader uh, for the administration. Now, if that is your news entry to uh, the people in government, uh, some people are going to be cut out from interviews uh, and from access to public officials. So you're going to have to go around corners and then others who get on the team, to come back to that expression, uh, will be getting that uh, private interview uh, with the president or with somebody else you know it uh, from reading that uh, George F. Will and William Buckley have special access to the White House. Now, that's a signal that would pervade every uh, branch of the government. But uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, those who Mr. Uh, 
uh, Buchanan considers hostile, and as the papers reported this week by Mr. Meese, if they show ethical responsibility, uh, euphemism that I talked about, then they are not going to have the same kind of access. Just makes you work a little harder, but you can still get it. Um, I'm afraid it's after 10 o'clock, and we're just about up, so we have time for one more question. And, uh, and I know we could all talk about this subject for a long time. Do we lose the hall? Well, my we question is really addressed to everyone in this room who writes for a living. Uh, I'm, I'm a, my name's Tom Congdon, and I've been a, a publisher, very definitely a small publisher for five years, a book publisher. Uh, when I wasn't a small publisher, that is when I worked for big publishers uh, in, in, the, in the great old 1970s, when it seemed quite possible to publish wonderful books uh, attacking things very vigorously. I think one of the proudest books I did was a book by uh, Harriet Dorson's distinguished uh, husband, uh, Norman Dorson. It was one of the very first books that dared to attack the FBI. It was called Investigating the FBI. And Robert Heilbrunner uh, did a book called uh, In the Name of Profit, Profiles in Corporate Greed. And, and uh, we, we, we got by that one. And, and uh, a book on industrial slaughter uh, called Muscle and Blood. Uh, in those days, it seems to me uh, not just publishers were interested in issues, but so were writers. And I ask you who write, where are the books? Uh, I, I, strong stuff, and I wondered if you all wouldn't admit to being somewhat chilled, perhaps not by uh, a, the Reagan, Reaganite frown so much as by your own commercial ambitions. Any response? I would say, yeah, my, my response, Tom, would be if you, sta if you stay <laughs> facing the audience and ask everyone there who has a book that uh, meets your criteria to raise his or her hand, I'll bet you that you get hands raised and then see whether you're willing to read their manuscripts. Better but yet, I, give them your address. <laughs> well, I would ask that question. How many people here have books that they think meet Tom's? Here, look, look. <laughs> Just a minute. Now, this is a room. This is one room. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to publish good books. <laughs> well, I want to thank the panel and thank all of you for your attention. Keep on writing. How? How? I don't know. Yeah, this is, we finished on the time. I guess they must have to give up the whole or something. What is this for? I've been here.